I want to begin with a proposal this morning that I hope does not amount to heresy at a national symposium on classical education. But I would say that if we want to have good conversations about great books, the first thing we have to recognize is that the books don't matter. Books are not what we are talking about. Now, I don't mean by this that the great books aren't great. I certainly don't mean that we should be reading anything else, and I don't mean that it doesn't matter what we read. What I mean is that there is always something deeper going on in good conversations than just books. What really matters for good conversation is reality. The reality of the human condition, the reality of the physical world, the reality of the social and political worlds we've created, and those features of the world to which we respond with a religious sense, the mysteries of the self, the other, and the divine. That is what matters, and that's what we want to be talking about. In Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, that great post-apocalyptic vision of the future that all of us are here in part to hope avoid, Professor Faber says to Montag, books were only one type of receptacle where we stored a lot of things we were afraid we might forget. There is nothing magical in them at all. The magic is only in what the books say, how they stitched the past patches of the universe together into one garment for us. So great books are not great because they appear on a list. Great books are great because they have consistently illuminated reality for us. Often for centuries, in some cases for millennia, they have opened us up to the beauty, the tragedy, and the mystery of the human condition. Or perhaps in the case of nonfiction works, they are great because they have advanced powerful proposals for human life that resonate with our deepest longings. Now I think we all know this as readers, but I think we do sometimes forget it when we are assigned to discuss a book in a classroom with a group of younger people. Under the pressure of teaching or leading a seminar, we sometimes forget the magic, as Dan urged us not to do yesterday. So good conversations about great books really ought to be good conversations about the reality that is opened up through the books. And I think, in my experience as a teacher, if we want to have such conversations with young people, we need just a few simple things. We need to have a clear and unwavering aim for our conversations. We need some simple pedagogical principles and the discipline to follow these through. And we need to create true community with our students. So I'll start with what I think ought to be the aim of conversations. And not only of conversation, but of education itself. The aim of what Jacques Maritain called human awakening. Whether we use that precise language or not, I think this or something very like this is what we have to aim for. Especially in conversations about great books, we want above all else for our students to be coming alive to the reality of the human condition. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what do the great books have to do with the reality of the human condition as we experience it? and as our students experience it. 
Of course, this connection is a little different for fiction, poetry, and the other literary arts than it is for nonfiction, so it might be worth making a quick distinction between those. When we're talking about fiction, poetry, or the other literary arts, we access the insight that the novelist, the dramatist, or the poet has into reality by entering as fully as possible into the world that the author's imagination has created for us. This is a little different, of course, for each of those genres, but our reading of them has in common that we faithfully enter a world created for us and we enter it on its own terms. In his essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien talks about the writing of a fairy story as an act of sub-creation, the bringing into being of a secondary world. And I don't think it's a challenge at all to extend this, in least, at least in some way, to most of the literary arts, with the possible exception of lyrical poetry. They share this feature with fairy stories. When we read a novel, we enter a self-contained world, and that is the reality we engage and the reality that we have to awaken our students to, the world of the story. Our means of engaging students in this reality, then, is to guide them faithfully and with discipline into that secondary world. Jeanette's remarks on Monday morning, and some of them this morning as well, were a good reminder of how many pitfalls exist to accomplishing that task and just how difficult it is. And some of the pitfalls begin with well-meaning aims, as she pointed out. But when reading and discussing literature, we have to insist upon the world of the text being the only world under discussion. Now, a student might fairly question that aim and say, what does this have to do with the so-called real world? Why should I care what happens to a bunch of bunnies in Watership Down? In the same essay on fairy stories, Tolkien writes that reading these stories affects in us a kind of recovery of vision. And this, too, I think, translates to other forms of literature. Recovery, he writes, which includes a return and renewal of health, is a regaining, regaining of a clear view. I do not say seeing things as they are and involve myself with the philosophers, though I might venture to say seeing things as we are or were meant to see them, as things apart from ourselves. We need in any case to clean our windows so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity from possessiveness. So this is one important effect that can be accomplished by entering a secondary world of literature and then recovering yourself into the primary world. So I've often remarked to students when discussing Dante's Inferno, for instance, that when they are finished reading, the hallway of the school should look different to them. It should be rescued from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity. Their moral imagination should be so enlarged by the reading of Dante that it affects their moral vision when they go into their ordinary life. Entering the fictional worlds of great literature should change how we understand the primary world in which we live. On the other hand, when we read nonfiction works, say Locke's Second Treatise or the Communist Manifesto, the Declaration of Independence, we stand alongside the author, 
directly observing the reality of this primary world as he or she describes it. We may have to exercise some historical imagination to put ourselves as much into the circumstances under which the author was writing as we can in order not to misunderstand, but we stand primarily next to the author, listening to his or her proposal, be that a social, moral, spiritual, religious, or even existential proposal. In either case, when reading the literary arts or nonfiction, we should understand not only our final aim, but even our first task in a good conversation to be awakening the students to the reality under consideration. Now once as educators we have established that aim and firmly adopted it, there's actually a fairly simple way to carry it out. I say simple because it is, but it's also one of those simple arts that takes a lifetime to master. The simple method I would propose, if you want to have the kinds of conversations that awaken students to reality, is to force yourself never to give an explanation to a student unless they have first encountered the reality you are explaining. I'll give an example. For more years than I can remember, I taught eighth grade boys literature and composition. That meant, in the cycle of my life, come springtime, it was my job to teach these young 13 or 14 year old boys the fine art of poetry. Now, I cannot remember what I did in the early years to introduce them to the topic, but I do remember that it was frustrating and unproductive. And I would come away thinking, these young men have no aptitude or even instinct for poetry in the way I appreciate it. And I'm sure they felt that from me. But one year I realized, well, wait a minute. They don't even know why a poet would write a poem. They have not had an encounter with the world that arouses that poetic urge in them. They had not experienced anything like what Christine illustrated for us in her talk on Hopkins and his poetry, pairing his journals with his poetic output. Or if they had, they had certainly never connected it with poetry. So I said, all right, boys, we're going outside. And this is when I was teaching in Minnesota, and one of the things that corresponds with spring is the great thaw. Um, surprisingly, for someone who did not grow up on the tundra, beneath that layer of snow and ice is an almost perfectly preserved layer of fall leaves. Some of them are even still crunchy, like they had just fallen off the tree. And this was amazing me about around that time in my life. So I had rounded them up, and I instructed them, all right now, I want you to pick up a handful of those leaves. I want you to roll them around in your hand until they're nice and crushed. And now I want you to put that up to your nose and inhale gently. Um, the first year I did not add gently. Experience <laughs> taught me that that needed to be added. But just smell that, I said. Let it sink in. And after a moment, I asked, now where precisely did that smell take you? What did it remind you of? And that smell is so pungent and so particular and the sense of smell so connected to memory that inevitably they went back to something in the fall. A very particular event, maybe a hay barn in their uncle's farm or a freshly mown alfalfa field, but something from the fall. So then I said, look around. The buds are on the trees. The birds have come back. The grass is greening. But there you hold in your hand the memory of fall. What do you make of that? 
And then we went back inside and we talked about the spring and the fall, what they're really like, what they mean. We put some nouns and some adjectives up on the board and we wrote a little poem together. At the end of that exercise, I could now tell them on the basis of their own contact with reality, not because of something in a textbook, that's all poetry is, guys. A poet goes out into the world, encounters it with his or her senses, and then derives some sort of meaning or understanding from it and attempts to communicate that to us in language. It was a fairly simple exercise, but it provided a better introduction to poetry than anything I could have written on the board or any introduction they could have read in a textbook. So specifically, with respect to our conversation about great books, in order to understand that the book they are reading bears upon reality in an important way, the only reason they should be reading it, students have to have some sense for the reality upon which it bears. Here's another example, this from teaching a nonfiction work, a political theory. For even more years than I taught eighth grade boys, I taught 12th graders in our senior seminar. And one of the texts we read is Locke's second treatise, including his take on the justification of private property, which is certainly not inappropriate to read as fundamental to the rest of the more explicitly political dimensions of the work. But one year I thought, what do even seniors even know about the human dimensions of property? What have they thought about? Have they made contact with that reality yet? Have they engaged what mine and yours really mean? And in the environment in which I taught anyway, um, the answer was most often no. Rather, they assumed the validity of private property, accepted it without question, and therefore without much understanding. So one year, while the students were getting ready to uh, talk about Locke, before the class had even begun or I'd passed out the text, but they were, knew we were making a transition, I walked around the seminar table and casually picked up one of the students' water bottles without asking. And uh, I just casually brought it back to my seat, uh, made, them, made sure I took a pretty public drink of it, and had them stand for prayer. And I started in, making sure, and of course a few of the students noticed this and wondered, what in the world is up? So I looked right at the student who had a puzzled look on his face and said, what? I was thirsty. Uh, there's plenty of water where that came from. But it's my water bottle, he said. And you have to pick the student with some deliberation if you do this exercise. <laughs> well, I said, but is it really? I mean, I have it. Um, I'm not sure you could prove that it's yours. I'm pretty sure you can't take it back from me. And I don't think you could give me an argument why I should give it back to you. Or if you can, why not just let me take a drink? What are you so upset about? I just took your water bottle. Um, and then we launch into a 10 or 15 minute discussion uh, prompted not by Locke's writing yet, but by an encounter with a violation of what he will call the right to property that's very personal. In the end, I said, okay, now we're going to read someone, among other things he has to say, you're, we're going to read someone who attempts to justify why it is that you think that water bottle is yours and why you even feel personally offended by my picking it up like that. And I give the water bottle back. So just as the engagement with the leaves helps the boys understand the poetic instinct, so this 10 to 15 minute discussion about the reality of property bought me at least four or five days of serious engagement with the text that just picking it up and starting in would never have generated. 
This happened because the students themselves were now looking for answers to a problem they actually had, the fundamentally human problem of labor, property, ownership, justice, and inequality in a civil society became their problem. They were then able to listen to Locke's proposal, to wrestle to understand what he was saying, thinking carefully about the book, and then engage in their own assessment of his proposal in light of their experience and their sense for how the world ought to be. I want to read a quick quote here from Jacques Martin's Education at the Crossroads that speaks to this. This is the book wherein he also proposes human awakening as the aim of education. Each field of training, each school activity, he writes, physical training as well as elementary reading or the rudiments of childhood etiquette and morals can be intrinsically improved on and can outstrip its own immediate value through being humanized in this way. Nothing should be required of the child without an explanation and without making sure that the child has understood. So if, as educators, we adopt the aim of educating for human awakening and we commit ourselves to being as sure as we can be that our students have engaged or are engaging the reality under discussion before we wander into providing an explanation, we are most of the way toward achieving good conversation about great books with our students. But I want to add one final ingredient, echoing something that has come up several times this week already, the importance of love and community. If we're going to have good conversations about great books, the whole thing has to be rooted in love. There has to come a time in the education of the heart that the heart turns outward and develops a habit of active love. One of my favorite poems is Love Calls Us to the Things of This World by Richard Wilbur. In the poem, I don't have time to read the whole thing, the poet wakes up in the morning to the cry of pulleys and laundry is being pulled out of the wash and hung up and the poet looks out through the frame of the window and sees blouses and bedsheets and smocks uh, flying by and for a brief moment he mistakes them for angels, for celestial beings and experiences a moment of rapture. But then, as always happens in these moments, reality begins to come back in rather quickly. He remembers his embodied existence. He remembers everything he has to do in the day. And the poem says that his soul cries out, oh, let there be nothing on earth but laundry, nothing but rosy hands in rising steam and clear dances done in the sight of heaven. I think we've all been there. We've had those transcendent experiences, and so have our students. And in a certain sense, these moments are great. Uh, they may just be a recognition that we all long for a time when all will be well. But there's another side that's a little darker and more challenging. If we can't accept back the waking world, ordinary life, the duties in front of us, that's a concern. So I want to read the end of the poem here. This is a passage right after, let there be nothing on earth but laundry. Yet as the sun acknowledges with a warm look the world's hunks and colors, the soul descends once more in bitter love to accept the waking body, saying now in a changed voice as the man yawns and rises, bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk in a pure floating of dark habits keeping their difficult balance. I've always admired that poem and thought it had uh, something important to do with living well. 
As I was reflecting on it recently, I realized it also has something to do with educating well. Because if we're going to engage the hearts as well as the minds of our students in genuine conversation, there is also a difficult balance to be kept. The first part of that balance is honesty, getting everything in and being honest about it. Thieves, lovers, and nuns in the words of the poem. But also Dostoevsky's wild-eyed mystical characters, the Midwestern Plains people in Willa Cather's novels, mole, rat, toad, and badger, saints and sinners and all the good and evil in the human heart. If we want to have good conversations with young people of the next generation, we've got to get that all in. We have to be honest with our students about all the dimensions of reality. If we're not, they simply won't believe us. If we just give them the light and don't talk to them about the darkness, they will know we are not being honest with them and they won't listen and they will be right not to do so. But the other side of this difficult balance is love. Love in the face of honest reality. And I don't know if there's any technique for this other than bearing witness to it ourselves. If we can be honest and then bear witness to our students that we love the world and that we love not our subjects but the reality beneath our subjects and that we genuinely love them, we have set the stage for great conversation because loving, honest engagement with reality creates community. And community is the only ultimate basis for good conversation. Thank you. I have had the, uh, the fact that I just arrived means I have not been able to partake of the richness of this event uh, today, this morning, coming in from Dallas is the first moment I had to be able to share at least part of this with you, and I'm very honored to be here. Um, I'm looking forward to afterwards where I understand there'll be possibilities to see the, the material and to get a better idea of what you have experienced, learned, shared, uh, it puts me, of course, at a funny position because I have no idea, other than a program, all of the energies and the exchanges that you have made. But then again, that sort of is exciting in a sense. I have no choice but to stand up here as I'm Carol Reynolds and to tell you kind of what my path has been to this group of people, why at this point in my life, after a lot of years doing a lot of other things, I find myself clinging happily in, in great joy to this enormous and highly promising and really re uh, the relief of the fact that this movement, I guess a movement is what it is, yes, this energy, this, this um, recognition that we have got to do something, and so many of you have been on, in on this for years, have been working quietly, have been working together, have been creating waves and changing the whole face of American education. I mean, that, I don't think that's an overstatement. Uh, if you weren't doing what you are doing, it would not be happening. At least that's what I think. So, um, and I'll, I'll tell you one reason why this, this is not my 
topic, but I'm very privileged in the last eight years to work for the Smithsonian is what they call a, they keep changing our titles, I don't ever know what the badge will say next, but I take people around and I do the lecturing and we, it's, a, it's the ultimate 24-7 classroom when you're in Prague or when you're in Russia or when you're in Croatia or anywhere, and hey, I'll go anywhere they want me to go, right, wouldn't you? And, and it's a, a part of the life, my life I never envisioned from my beginnings in Roanoke, Virginia, and I don't know how many of you all know Roanoke, Virginia, but maybe you are from your version of Roanoke, Virginia, okay? I never thought I'd get out of my backyard, and almost no one I did know growing up got out of his or her backyard. So this, the idea that I have this part of my life now is, is, a, is extraordinary to me. And I bring that up because I'm with some very interesting people. You can imagine, Smithsonian tours, people don't just drift into those, right? People with, uh, retired people primarily, people older than I am, it's amazing. And people who have done incredible amounts of things in their lives and they're tuned in and they, and they um, it, it's, it's glorious, you learn so much, you're stimulated, the discussions, but do you know that they have, by and large, no idea that this is happening? And I'm not up here to go, 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 but I, I just have to tell you that I have more fun, I have to be careful at the dinner table, but I have more fun trying my best to describe this whole marvelous, I just go back to that boring word, movement, but I don't know a better one, maybe you can help me, this change. This, this statement that we're going to take what matters and we're going to take it in a way that it does matter, which was just so beautifully said. I want to run out and grab leaves now, you know? And, and I want, I mean, we smell, I mean, smell, look, let's, we need to, we know how powerful that is. And that does, and just the idea of what you said, the laundry, the angels, it's beautiful. We all know the beauty and the strength and the, the life-changing possibilities of one metaphor, one image, one glimpse, one note one bit of color. So I, I just say go and, and you know, thank heavens and you know, help me to have more chances to tell more people from my world what is happening here because they think it can't be done, quite frankly. And if I were to summarize the dinner table conversations, oh, right, you got third graders doing Latin. I mean, they don't say it like that because they're not from Roanoke, Virginia, okay? But you, th this can't be done. You, they're reading this. They're reading, you, they're reading Sophocles. They're reading this. They're reading Aristophanes. They're, oh, seriously? I mean, there is a disbelief. You already know that, and I will get off of that. But I, I do think that part of the battle line, part of the push, part of the mountain that has to be moved is taking the fact, which you do, but taking it even further out into a field where people who are in pretty influential positions, they don't know and their eyes get very big. Now, I grew up as a piano player. I was pretty good, did the little competitions. It's the only time I got out of the backyard, but it was still local, right? And I had no idea that music was connected to literature. Um, simple background, father, seventh grade education, mother, ninth, you know, none of that was unusual in my time. And I love to read because you got to go to the library, whoa, and the great books. I remember when they came and those beautiful bindings, right? You know, that whole publication that many of us have, that many of you have. I can almost remember the day when it was installed in the Roanoke, Virginia Public Library, and I sort of sat when it was like Mount Rushmore was now on the shelves or something. It was fantastic. And so I, I knew that through this was some door, and maybe if I grew up and I did something hard, and you know, maybe I could go in through that door. But playing Brahms and Mozart and, and Schumann and Chopin and Prokofiev had no idea that there was connection. 
All right? So that was my position, really, until I had a chance to be at what I have to describe in the early 70s as a very messy year at North Carolina School of the Arts. You all don't probably all remember the early 1970s, the way maybe a few of you do, but it was a messy time. But I found out that everything bleeds and moves together. And I found it out because I, you know, kids by and large aren't being exposed to the arts. And when they do, it's the arts. And I'd like to wring the neck of the person who came up with the word extracurricular, if I could find that person. Because that has heard a lot of what we love and do, right? So at the North Carolina School of the Arts, which is quite small then, I found out that dancers' feet bleed a lot. I see nods. They look real pretty in the pictures, don't they? I found out that harpist fingers bleed a lot and that brass players spend their whole lives trying not to have the most horrible pain from chapped lips that destroy their embouchure. I found out what it smells like in a painting or in a sculpture studio, in pottery. I had no idea the hours people in there making a mobile, which I thought you probably just got the thread. And the, I had no idea that people would sit up for three straight nights trying to get one thread to work. You know, I didn't know these things. I had never heard Mahler. I'd never been to an opera in Virginia. You know, I didn't know any of this. And I didn't know that the thing I loved about literature, the fact that I loved to read the fact that I had good, we had good teachers in public school back then. Look, these were amazing people. I look back on them, my, my hat is so off to them. And they gave us the love of literature, the very things you're talking about. You know, Mrs. Owl and Mr. and Mrs. and Mrs. Dur I mean, we loved and we did what we were told. We were put on fire by a lot of that. But I had no idea connected to anything. I didn't know it connected to history. I'm sure they told me, all right? So it was this time of figuring out that music and art are really also math and acoustics, and nature, and history. And it was like, pow, you know? And of course, you can't absorb pow all at once, can you? You need a few more years to sort it out. I feel like I'm still sorting it out. So it is, in terms of the conversation about the great books, which, uh, you know, is, is a phrase that is, is just such a, I mean, it's another humongous pow, right? I am pretty sure that the arts need to be the river that the boat is floating on. Because that is how creation of artistic works happens. I remember when I first realized, and I mean first realized, that those writers were friends with painters and with singers and with composers and set designers. And they all hung out and they did some pretty crazy things. You know, you don't always want to start with the biographies of these people. It's not always nice and neat, right? But you can work around most of it. Not everybody, but most of it. I had no idea that they did what young people who are on fire always do, which is push against each other and fight with each other and disdain each other and adore each other and feed off of each other. I had no idea about any of that because I thought, you know, I don't know what I thought. I have no idea what I thought. And I think kids, the ages you're talking about, the, I got here 20 minutes, with 20 minutes left to go with the previous presentation with Jeanette, and she was talking about the age in which kids can do certain things. And she was talking about music, and she was talking about painting, yay, you know? But at what age can kids really start putting things together? You can't worry too much about that, but I think it's pretty fair that they don't know that it's woven, that it's a full tapestry, and that in reality, the act of creation is of the 
artistic creation is messy and exhausting and weird and, and, and uh, you know, 5% of the time a composer knows what is happening and 95% doesn't. And I know this because I've spent my life working with composers in the recent, in about 40, 50 years of it. So I now know that it, it, it's uh, something that is true of the writers. We, we are, as you were sort of, and we, we've got to show them the reality and the mess and the, and the frustration. We have to trim a bit of it off, you see. Um, I often think about what happens when you give kids who don't want to read or don't feel comfortable reading or don't like to read or are scared to read audiobooks, right? And it's, it can be a key for some students. I'm working with a young man now who has to get through Little Dorrit, really under a lot of pressure. And so I said, get an audio book, you know. And, and all of a sudden, whoa, this is exciting. You know, why? Because it's drama now. Now we're in theater. Now it's the theater of the imagination. Now he can put that silly, he, he's done all the math because he's a math guy, and he's figured out it's slower than he could read. So, But it made it come alive. Nothing else was going to make that for this kid come alive. Now he's been able to go to the theater in his mind, and it is alive. The arts have this ability to ignite really anything that is stuck and using the arts it kind of is you said people say well I don't know a lot about painting right it doesn't matter it's nice to have training but it doesn't matter and, and I'm going to give you my example that I'm always pounding on. I'm going to keep looking at the clock here. Because um, I still think I'm at the airport. I'm not. I'm so thrilled. I'm so thrilled everything worked. That's technology, our friend and our foe, right? But we are in a funny age walking through the airport. Do you know what percentage of people, and, and if I'm stepping on anybody's toes, I'm sorry, are, they're kind of, they're wired, right? Earbuds. Earbuds. Don't you wish you had the, the franchise on earbuds, right? Do you know how many earbuds must be out there? And I realize there's a wonderful thing. I mean, look, when the toddlers are screeching, the headphones, I get this. This is important. It's a wonderful piece of technology. Beautiful sound, Bose, it's great. But the fact is, a good percentage of people are walking through life, and they are hearing and seeing nothing. We said, but they're listening to their music, and they are, I think. Because music was never, I mean, maybe now, written to be put into a form that goes to a little tiny wire, into a little tiny speaker, which is what it's doing, even with the best quality. I think we all know that poetry was written to be sung and to be shared in intimate gatherings. This is already too big a space for poetry. This is already too big a space for, for chamber music, for real chamber music, for real leader recitals. It needs to be your living room. That's where music was written. Or the back porch, or you know, a, a small 18th century theater where you have 250 people, you filled the place. Okay, yes, it's gotten bigger. Mahler made it bigger. We know the historical flow is bigger until after the First World War, and then smaller, then bigger again. And now electronic, go to the stadium, spend $18,000 on tickets, and speakers filling the entire campus here. And yes, I'm sure that's very exciting. I mean, but is that what, and for someone meaningful, I get that. But how many of those people have been in an intimate situation of music making, or poetry, or in the kitchen, or singing, or have a fiddle player come in and sit on the picnic table and play some old time fiddle tunes, or to get to my big thing, and some of you who know me, we have stopped singing. And yet, you talk about the literary tradition. What was it? It was song. It was epic poetry. It was the bard. If you're in the Russian tradition, it's the blind goosely players, either one or three. I don't know. Troika, I guess, you know. I mean, it is a song. Literature is a song, especially the fiction or the poetry. It is meant to be sung. People memorize their epics. We look at that and go, wow. But we know neurologically that something said to music goes in and stays. 
And we as a culture, particularly in the United States, in the places I go, a lot of the places, like particularly the Baltics or Eastern Europe, this is not true yet, because they haven't gotten completely in love with this thing that goes on, they have not completely given it up yet. All right? They still sing. They sing, they sing because a lot of times because of centuries, or decades, centuries of political oppression. The only thing they could sing is, do is sing. Look at the history in Estonia, Lithuania, um, where, where the only thing that was left under decades of communism was the ability to sing in your language. Not speak, not use it in your job, not use it bureaucratically or at the university but to sing. So I, I, I will go to this because we in the United States, we say, I say the word sing and most people say back, you tell me, I can't sing, right? Surely you know people who have said that. Let's sing everybody. I'm gonna walk right up to one of you, it's a good thing I can't right now. Say, will you sing me something? And there's a good chance, well first of all you'll go, what is this woman doing, right? But the second thing you would think is, I mean, average people, what is it gonna be 80% of the people if you take in, let's go to one of these classrooms here and get some of these business majors. I need you to sing me the, your favorites. I can't sing. Oh, I, I have a recording of it, I've got it on my iPod. I can't sing. Do you know what, if you can speak, you can sing. That is a fact. But we as a culture are so frightened about singing, we have some, somehow, we went from my grandmother's generation where everybody sang. Now maybe Uncle Harry sounded terrible, but he sang. We stopped singing. Now I want you to hear, I don't even know you. I may never see most of you again. I'm giving you an absolute assignment. I, I, maybe we'll do it at lunch. No one will sit with me. But you know, I, I, we have to sing. We have to start singing again. I'm not supposed to leave this. Am I supposed to move this mic? You know, does, is anybody game to sing something to me? sings and they sang in history and we have so much of what we have in our tradition and we could do this and we could all day. let me tell you it works with kids you can either scream at them or you can sing at them and it works much much better it works much better they remember okay I won't continue that I won't continue too much of anything actually except to say that the power of what we do it changes the emotion it changes the body our air our movement you know okay yes you have to learn to play the violin you have to do a lot of serious things yes we know it's all very serious to become a classical musician I'm not talking about people becoming classical musicians or skilled painters I'm talking about the fact that we have decided that we aren't somehow connected and therefore we are not connecting as a culture. The very things that we sometimes teach and that the power of, of, of something like what you did with the leaves, I'm just going to love that. It's going to go far and wide. I'm going to be talking about that the rest of the year. I'm telling you. But just to say, 
we're, we're okay, we have a curriculum, right? So I can't just go around singing at them. I can't just bring finger paints into them, although it's not a bad idea. I can't just say, today, maybe you can. You took them out, you know, you do nothing but you talk about a painting or you, and, and that's too big to go in in, in 176 seconds, which is probably what I've got left. You know, how do you approach art? I like to write about that. I like to speak about that, talking about strategies for people who, you're not getting me in a museum. I took my kids once, you know. I mean, we, we have so many prejudices. You have so many battles to fight. But this idea that those things are separate and not ours or of us, or those are not things that we can't. We go in a grocery store, we grab all kinds of things, don't we? And yet, you know, can you imagine if we shop the way we talk? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? We wouldn't have. And we try things, and we're not scared of things, most of us. And you go, what is, I'm going to buy it. You know, and I, we're going to try weird things and interesting things, and we smell them, and we're open. And yet, with the arts, we somehow don't think they are ours. So what could I say that's concrete? If I were going to recommend to you two writers where you could work so easily and so really rewardingly with the music, Music and visual art and, and drama and dance. I would start first of all with Goethe, believe it or not. I mean, he sounds scary, right? Nobody's even sure how to say his name. You can't believe what I hear. Sometimes Goethe, and I'm, because you don't hear it. We don't do Johann Gottfried von Goethe. We, we acknowledge Faust in lists. But you know what? In Agamemnon, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, Frankfurt der Allgemeinen Zeitung, a number of years ago, I was flying out of Frankfurt and they had a list of the 100 most important, significant German pieces of literature. You expect what? Das Kapital? You, ex what do you, you expect something, right? Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe. Something he wrote when he was 24 years old that's kind of a thing like with a Harry Potter thing that put him into world fame. It's, it's, it's not Faust. It's not this, it's not that. It's this sentimental epistolary novel where all the letters go one way and he ends up shooting himself at the end, and in 1774, you better believe that was something. Over a love triangle that happens in a fraternity sorority house all the time. It was a piece of, you could say it's a piece of schlock, you could say the most influential German literature, Sorrows of Young Werther by Goethe, I kept that piece of newspaper and framed it, I'll tell you that. But with Goethe, working through the poems in into the songs, working through with Faust, looking at all the characterization that have come out of that. There's operas from Werther. There's so much Goethe was a scientist. He was a city planner. He was a park designer. He was a, man, a diplomat in some respects. He had a career from 24, where his fame shot up, to basically taking over Europe for 49 more years after that. He was the guy. And there's almost no artist that was not touched by Goethe. And there's almost no art that you can think of between that period from about the 1770s until really 1820s, 1830s, it somehow isn't going to be touched by Goethe's literary uh, tendrils, if I may. So that's one place. If anybody wants something more specific, I'm happy to share of cards, whatever, talk about ways you can look and work. And I'll tell you, once you start doing that, Goethe goes away from this scary German guy that nobody's quite sure what it is he did, I mean, kids don't know, to someone that is so impassioned and so vital and you can't get enough of it. And the other would be Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin, who is to Russian language what Shakespeare is to English times three. And I'll stand by that. I love that Dostoevsky has an important place in everybody's, and I'll stop with this, the, the classical, um, you know, the lists and the sem seminars and the symposium and the papers. I mean, it is so great to see Tolstoy and Dostoevsky so embraced. You know, that could have not happened, right? But 
well, they hadn't even gotten out of diapers, basically. Pushkin. This guy who lived 38 years killed in a duel. Everybody's shot one way or the other in you know, that period. Pushkin completely created the Russian language. He changed everything. He grabbed urban Russian culture and made it into a cultural, a sort of froze it and then set it free to dictate what would be the next 100 years until the revolution of how Russians almost think. People used to come when you didn't have it on your Kindle. They'd come from the Soviet Union from, to study at SMU or any place, and they'd have Eugene Onegin in their pocket. They would have this masterwork by Pushkin, the one work, if you have nothing else, Eugene Onegin, Yevgeny Onegin, a, um, a novel in verse, nothing like it in poetry that I've ever seen, better than Byron, I'm sorry, don't even say that. They wouldn't leave home without it. And from Pushkin, you have the person who grabbed the fairy tale tradition. You have the dramas, Queen in a Spade. You have, you, have an, you have so much that we could just, you know, paper the walls of this whole city with Pushkin. And yet we don't have a touch with him uh, because of the language. I understand how that happens. And no Pushkin, no Dostoevsky, no Pushkin, no Tolstoy, that, no Pushkin, no Solzhenitsyn. It, it all comes, and they would be the first to tell you. Dostoevsky himself made tributes to Pushkin that would make you weep if you understood uh, how he said it in Russian particularly. So uh, those are just two offers for me to throw out there in terms of unlocking, two that you might not ordinarily approach, two that are particularly rich in their artistic expressions, two examples of how you can take the artistic expressions, again, I'm flying through this, but the operas and the songs and the paintings and the plays and the ballets and everything else that's out there and get back down into what it was because they are the motors that drove all of that and continue to this day. I know no two authors so revered and so considered so contemporary by people who are, you know, wandering around in those language groups, German speakers and Russian speakers, as Goethe and Pushkin. And of all the many reasons that's true, it is that power of the arts, that tapestry from which they cannot be separated, nor would they want to be. So I thank you for letting me sort of rant up here a bit, but I, I wish, I, I'm glad I came to understand a little of what is the reality of the creative impulse and for literature and for the arts. They are one flowing river. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I bet the people sitting in the front row did not anticipate that happening. And for the people in the middle and back rows, you think you're off the hook, but my topic is on dancing. <laughs> I don't have a PowerPoint today. That comes from a conviction that power corrupts, but PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. Uh, we're here to talk a little bit about fostering good conversations via good, great books. And I'd suggest to you that that's really the essence of liberal teaching and learning. Ultimately, it's a liberating endeavor. Good conversations are much needed today. Uh, fostering any real conversation today, for that matter, is much needed. It's a difficult time for conversation. America is polarized, and its ill effects are felt by young people. 
As one high school student put it to me this past summer, is it possible for me to disagree with my friends and for us to still be friends? This was not an abstract question, but an existential one. It's one that we all face as a nation. Can we disagree and still be one people? Put another way, where do we find the unum in e pluribus unum? The fostering of good conversations about great books was an important part of how this nation was conceived in liberty. The recovery of good conversation about great books is a vital part, I will argue, of an American future worthy of our nation's founding and worthy of the blessings of liberty. Fostering good conversations about great books helps human beings come to love liberty and to despise tyranny. Augustine's City of God was written, in his words, quote, to convince the proud of the power and excellence of humility, end quote. Now that's a highly unusual purpose for a thousand page book, but for the fifth century Augustine, steeped in the classics of Greece and Rome, Rousseau would much later try to dismiss him as, dismiss Augustine as being a rhetor. This was a deliberate undertaking with an elaborate argument. Boiled down to its essence, Augustine's argument was a warning. If you put too much faith in the power of the state, you will be disappointed. Civil religion, in all of its guises, is insufficient to hold people together. The ties that truly bind must run more deeply. Now, some uh, 1,400 years after Augustine, a teenaged James Madison landed on the campus of what was then the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University. The innovative college president at the time, John Witherspoon, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, was a Scottish minister steeped in the classics. In a departure from the reigning pedagogical orthodoxy, Witherspoon carved out room for student participation in seminar-style discussions. Lectures were still common on campus, but students were given opportunity to wrestle with the great books and great ideas in a new way that entailed new possibilities of the students owning those ideas. For Madison, the Augustinian insights he heard from John Witherspoon would help shape his moral and political philosophy. Man is not perfectible, Madison held following the Augustinian tradition. So the state should not seek to make people perfect. Human beings are capable of self-government, and the purpose of constitutions written and unwritten should be the provision of the means by which human beings can become self-governing. Madison is justly known as the father of the Constitution. He also was instrumental in the adoption of the Bill of Rights. I work at an organization called the Bill of Rights Institute. We teach the ideas of the Constitution as a whole, the ideas of America, to young people via supporting a network of tens of thousands of teachers of American history and civics. As monumental as were Madison's contributions to the creation of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, our written Constitution, 
as important was his framing of what we might call the unwritten constitution, our national character. Think back to when the constitution was being written in the long hot summer of 1787. Even as the framers of the constitution debated that document, the real obsession that they had, the real preoccupation and worry that they upheld was are we going to be able to, as a nation, create the kind of education that is consistent with the Republican institutions that were being forged? There was a confidence, despite the fact that the negotiations about the Constitution often seemed intractable, that they were going to be able to create a document. You see this in the letters that the delegates, including James Madison, George Washington, many others were writing when they would go home in the evening hours after a long days of del deliberation. There was some worry that they might be stopped in their enterprise, but ultimately their, their, their real concern was are we going to be able to weave together the informal, unwritten constitution, the character of a people, the educational system really, that is capable of supporting our institutions. Without that unwritten character, that, that, that unwritten constitution, James Madison held that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights would be but a parchment barrier. It's just a piece of paper, he wrote. For Madison, good conversations about great books animated his own preparation for leadership. It drove him in his beautiful correspondence with Thomas Jefferson that led to the establishment of the University of Virginia. How many of you have had a chance to, to look at that correspondence? If you haven't, it's really a remarkable thing. They were exchanging ideas about what books should be read, what the curriculum ought to look like, how it could create young citizens who were capable of self-governance. His preoccupation with great books, Madison's preoccupation with great books, led him to the belief that education in civic and moral virtue was vital that it was as important as the creation of those institutions of government. Now, I want to make a transition here from Madison and his kind of Augustinian understanding of these ideas to an American who I think is one of the best exemplars of what it means to, to, to really live out that, that unwritten constitution. And this is Frederick Douglass. In, in the same year in which Illinois became a state, and in which Abraham Lincoln's mother died, Frederick Douglass was born. He never knew for sure the day or month of his birth. Uh, he, for a long time, didn't even know what year he had been born in. His best guess was that he was born in February 1818. Officially, his mother named him Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. He later used the surname Stanley, then Johnson, and then finally Douglas with one S. He added an S at the end of his surname after Sir Walter Scott's poem, Lady of the Lake, a figure in that poem. Douglas did not know the identity of his father, but it was probably his first master, a man by the name of Aaron Anthony. He served as chief overseer of property for Colonel Edward Lloyd, who was one of Maryland's wealthiest men. Now, young Freddie hardly knew his mother. She lived on a neighboring plantation. 
She died before Freddie turned eight years old. His early years, as a result, were, as Douglas said, in one of the three autobiographies he wrote, full of an unintelligible beginning. Douglas didn't own his first pair of pants until he was about seven. And, you know, his, his encounter with justice uh, was, was uh, so infrequent that he relates in one of his stories, one of his autobiographies, how when the daily ration was being doled out to him one day, in one of the three times that he saw his mother, she happened upon the scene when he was de being deprived of his due, due ration. She stepped in, as any mother would, and claimed that small allotment of food for her son. And Douglas said in that encounter, that moment, that he felt for the first time like he understood something of what, what justice might be. But it was something that he would be, to be, be able to experience only very rarely in his young life. On that day in which she intervened and gave him a sense of what justice might be, she had walked 13 miles in order to see him. That same night, she had to walk 13 miles back to where she lived, a full marathon of maternal love. Now, slavery for Douglas was a self-perpetuating cycle of disordered pride and debased conduct. He called it the soul-crushing and death-dealing character of slavery. Humiliation was his daily existence. Let me relate by using Douglas's own words one of the most harrowing examples of, of this kind of humiliation. It's a story that Douglas encountered in his own life about an old slave named Old Barney. And this slave was about the same age as the owner of this man. This is what Douglas writes, and here I'm quoting. These two men were both advanced in years. There were the silver locks of the master and the bald and toil-worn brow of the slave. Superior and inferior here, powerful and weak here, but equals before God. Old Barney, who was described by Douglas as possessing, quote, a respectful and dignified bearing, was the keeper of the Lloyd stable, along with his son, who was named Young Barney. Obsessed with the horses, his horses, the owner was always finding fault with the care that these two slaves provided. After noting some perceived infraction of the stable rules by Old Barney, Lloyd, the slave owner, ordered the old slave to kneel. He then delivered 30 lashes with his horsewhip. Douglas had watched countless whippings, but at this one he was shocked to see the spectacle, and here again I'm quoting Douglas, of an aged man, a husband and a father, humbly kneeling before his fellow man, taking the lashes patiently with no resistance, responding to each blow with only a shrug of the shoulders and a groan. What young Freddie Bailey witnessed in that incident, he later said, was, quote, slavery in its true color, end quote. Douglas knew that there was a dignity in him, in his mother, in that enslaved person, old Barney. But every day he was told 
that the commandments of Scripture militated against his freedom and directed that he should be a slave. What Douglas had to do was figure out how could he maintain and uphold that sense of dignity that he had an inchoate uh, feeling about. How did he do this? I think what we see in Douglas's capturing of this dignity is in many ways the process that happens when one goes through good conversations about great books. And in fact, the intellectual component for Douglas was really profound. Because what he did is teach himself how to read. He uh, had grown up on a plantation and then was sent to Baltimore. It was in Baltimore, the city, where he came under ownership of a man whose wife allowed Douglas to continue to learn how to read, helped by her as they would read the Bible. Now, this for Douglas was incredibly important. But the slave owner caught wind of what was happening and said this, if he learns, if Douglas learns to read the Bible, it will forever unfit him to be a slave. Now you can imagine that the young Douglas hearing that said, well, that's exactly what I want. I want to be unfit. He devoured everything he could get his hands on. He came across a book called The Columbian Orator. This book is out of print, but I found a copy and read it. And it reads like an instruction in the, 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 the lives of ancient Greeks and Romans. It brings uh, the story of freedom to the place even of George Washington. And what Douglas saw in devouring this book as a young man is that there was a possibility for him to be free. He identified with the characters, whether in Greece, Rome, or early America, who had found their way by hook or crook to freedom. What was happening in Douglas's mind then was an intellectual awakening. This led to further action on behalf of his owners. Because what they saw is a, a young man who was becoming unfit for enslavement. What they did is sent him from Baltimore out to a place where, and this is a horrible term, but the slave breaker resided. Now, what Douglas had to endure every day was a kind of predation by this man that's almost uh, defies explanation. If you haven't read one of the three autobiographies of Douglas, I would encourage you to do so. But what this guy would do, Edward Covey, is lie in wait for Douglas to make one small mistake in a day. And he was very good at hiding. And just about the time that Douglas was at, at, at physical exhaustion, he would have to work 16 hours every day. He would leap out and, and, and beat Douglas up. And what, what happened in, in, in Douglas's mind as this was happening is he wondered, is it me or the oxen that I'm driving that are the real brutes, the real beasts? He had to go through a thought process where having been awakened intellectually to the possibility of his own dignity, he came to realize that, in fact, in the moral standing that he had before God and man, he was a human being. 
There was a further liberation that came to him when he came to this realization. And despite the fact that the beatings continued, there was a way in which Douglas became what he said is a free man in fact, even though he was a slave in form. He was a free man in fact, but a slave in form. I think there's something really profound that happens in the kind of conversations that John talked about. And in those moments of stirring that music and poetry can, can, can bring to human beings. Carol mentioned Pushkin. And without Pushkin, we wouldn't have had Solzhenitsyn. But when I think of what Douglas went through and what he came to as a human being, I think of what Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian dissident, came to. He, he had a term for this. It was having a point of view. When, when Solzhenitsyn looked at those people like himself that were uh, enduring prison terms, his crime against Stalin was making a joke. Many people endured worse parts of the gulag than Solzhenitsyn. But when Solzhenitsyn reflected on what would allow a person's spirit not to be broken, he said what they would have is a point of view. It was a kind of unmovable place, intellectually and morally, where no matter what was coming at you, it would not remove you from the knowledge that you're a human being and that you ought not to lie. You ought not to concede anything to tyrants. That's what Douglas got. It resulted because he was, in, to use uh, an image that, that Solzhenitsyn used, he polished his soul. That was really an amazing thing. Now, Douglas, having come to this realization, resolved that he was going to escape enslavement in its physical form. It's a very dramatic story. But what's interesting to me is that when he finally decided to confront that man who was uh, intent on breaking Douglas's spirit, the guy proved to be a pretty wimpy person, as you might expect. Douglas, by this point, was a person of some physical stature. And when he physically resisted the beating for that day, the man backed down, knowing that, in fact, Douglas could have ended his life. He called for help on the plantation and ordered other slaves to come to his aid. None did. And after that resistance by Douglas, in the physical, his physical existence, that slave breaker never laid a finger on him again. It took several months, however, for Douglas to figure out how he could escape that place, but he did so. And he became, as we all know now, one of America's finest orators. He became a statesman of the first order. He became somebody that spoke all over the country. So eloquent was he that many people said, you weren't enslaved. You surely could not have come to the education that you did on your own. Douglas said that if people didn't believe me, you can see the diploma that's written on my back. What he had encountered in those conversations that he had, however limited they were, but the conversations that he could have with people from bygone eras had made him into somebody that had a great soul.
Now, I don't have time to go into all the, the, the amazing peregrinations in Douglas's intellectual journey, but I did want to relate one dilemma that he faced, because I think it's a dilemma that we face today. And that is, should we stand with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution? For Douglas, immediately after his escape from slavery, he fell under sway of a school of thought from the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. The Garrisonians stood apart from politics. They believed that even to vote would to cast legitimacy on the system that was birthed in blood. The Constitution was a compact with the devil. It was a covenant with absolute evil, and therefore one could have nothing to do with government. For much of Douglass's adult life, that's what he believed. And then he said, you know what, I need to go back and read the framers of the Constitution and those individuals who wrote the Declaration of Independence. And he came to the realization that what was really important is the fact that the Declaration was a promise. It was a promise unfulfilled, but nonetheless, everything was there that was needed to put slavery in course, as his friend Abraham Lincoln said, in course of ultimate extinction. Douglas did a 180. He announced that 180 in his own newspaper, in an editorial that was uh, about his change of opinion. And the other thing that I want to relate to you is Douglas was able to forgive those people who enslaved him. This is really remarkable. If you have, as part of the literature that you teach, you include documents and, and letters, I'd encourage you to check out the letters that Douglas wrote to his two, uh, uh, the two brothers that, that held him in captivity. One, let me just read briefly, he, he wrote on the 10th anniversary of his uh, escape to freedom. Three of Douglas's four sisters were still held in captivity by this guy. And Douglas wrote him a letter that said this, quote, you have kept them in utter ignorance and have therefore robbed them of the sweet enjoyments of writing or receiving letters from absent friends and relatives. His sisters were illiterate. Your wickedness and cruelty committed in this respect on your fellow creatures are greater than all the stripes you have laid upon my back or theirs. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit, and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common father and creator. The deprivation of that conversation that human beings should have is one that Douglas considered an affront to the very humanity, not only of his sisters, but of all people so enslaved. Douglas wrote the other brother and said simply, I love you, but hate slavery. What a remarkable thing to be able to say. What Douglas was able to do in the maturity of his adulthood was bring America around to a place in a remarkable conversation. You know, we think we're polarized now, Think back to what it was then in the cauldron of the Civil War and its aftermath. What Douglas grappled with 
in the midst of that was the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. And one quotation that I've always appreciated about Douglass's his, uh, uh, corpus is a couple weeks after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, Douglass said, truth is powerful. An individual armed with truth is a majority against the world. I think that's what a great conversation can really affect in human beings. It can make them realize that majorities don't have to prevail. That if they truly are armed with the truth, they can be a majority against the world. And what I would suggest to you in closing is that the four individuals that I've pointed us to today, Augustine, Madison, Douglas, and even Solzhenitsyn a bit, that their intellectual lives were, were, were framed in conversation with great books. Their moral lives are exemplary of a willingness to learn from these conversations. They were people, ultimately, of real integrity. You know, when Alexander Solzhenitsyn was ordered to present himself to the Soviet regime just before he was exiled from the country, he wrote a letter to the leader of the Soviet Union. He said this, in the circumstances created by the universal and unrelieved illegality enthroned for many years in our country, I refuse to acknowledge the legality of your summons and shall not report for questioning to any agency of the state. What a remarkable statement. When we think of how we kindle conversations with young people, I think it's vital that we should look to figures like these that can give us an example of how to foster good conversations. I noted our, our, our polarized environment. Over the next decade, I'm sure, certainly this year, leading to even another election cycle, you're going to hear a lot about what efforts we can make to depolarize. There already are many books that have been written about the subject. Yet what I would suggest to you is the work that you all are doing, fostering those great conversations, is really not as a, its, it's direct purpose is not depolarization, but a very important benefit of that conversation is the possibility that this nation can recover the language of freedom that is found in that conversation about great books. Let me stop there, and we'll have time for questions about uh, uh, to, to any of the, uh, the, the, the panelists. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
The question is about equality and the use of that idea by the founders in particular who don't use it as much as liberty. It's true, but I don't know that it meant that that it, that, that, that uh, had any less meaning for them. You know, I think here, for, for me at least, I see the two ideas as flip sides of the same coin. And just as liberty is not license, equality cannot mean, as it has come to mean, that we're equal in everything. When Jefferson wrote the words in the Declaration, affirmed by the rest of uh, his fellows, that all men are created equal, there was a particular and weighty understanding of what equality meant. I think one of the best guides to that understanding is actually in Alexis de Tocqueville. And I don't know how many of you and in how many of your schools Tocqueville makes the, 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 the cut for, for reading, but you could very profitably read The Federalist and Tocqueville and reflect on that for an entire semester, an entire year. Tocqueville was a prophet in many ways. That's been much noted. But I think particularly on our passion for equality, he was right on. And what he said is that Americans are kind of uh, monists. We like to reduce everything down. And in equality, we have this unrelenting passion where we want to be equal in the ways that would be defined according to our uh, e economic well-being. That's dangerous. The founders knew that. Their institutions were designed to ensure that the majorities could not, by direct democracy, vote themselves largesse from those who, who had resources. So there's a really important way in which I think you can't have the liberty without the right understanding of equality. And so a reflection with your students on what that means, I think, is a really profound thing to do. One way that I would approach this with, with, uh, with, with students is ask, how many of them thought slavery was wrong? Every hand in the class would go up immediately. Then we would spend the next class period or two, sometimes three, trying to figure out why. Because that part of our Declaration of Independence is quoted blithely now. But we really don't understand the, the important way in which Jefferson, by his own lights, is drawing upon who? Aristotle, Sidney, and Locke. There's a deep reflection on what equality means there. And to understand the why. Why are human beings equal? And in what way is a really important good conversation? Any other thoughts? Yes, sir, in the back. So the question is, 
was there an ongoing conversation amongst the founders on, on how really to, to, to shore up the, the, the understanding and the kind of educational underpinnings that could support a Republican form of government? And the answer is yes. It's very diffuse, though. That was, that's part of the challenge. There are some pretty good books. Uh, the uh, Pangles, P-A-N-G-L-E, have written a book that, that looks at some of the, the educational reflections and tries to lend some uh, order to the, the, the many different conversations that were going on in the Republic of Letters. I think what you see in the conversation between Madison and Jefferson on the establishment of the University of Virginia gives you a really great sense of that. Uh, for so many people like Benjamin Rush, the preoccupation was in how do we shape the minds of even younger students. And I think if there was a common thread amongst them all, it is that if we confuse liberty and license, we can put together the most brilliant constitution in the world and that ever has been devised by human hands, and it won't matter. And this was not a sectarian sentiment. It was not denominational, but what was shared is that, that this enterprise, this educational undertaking, is so vital that it has to be done at the local level. And that's part of the things that, that's confusing to us, right, in the era of No Child Left Behind and you know, all of these things that come from Washington and you all are, are laboring under uh, uh, an increasingly uh, huge volume of regulations that come from your state capitals. It's hard for us to imagine that people who are legislators would not seek to legislate about this, right? The word education doesn't show up in the Constitution. There was good reason. They didn't want it to be at the national level, right? So you have to get the conversation at the right level, but at the local level, it was the preoccupation. And there's, there's a lot of great uh, 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 back and forth that's happening, especially with, with, uh, with, with Madison, and others where they're, they're trying to figure out what kind of a curriculum do we need. I think the experience that Madison has a, 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 as a college student was just pivotal for him. You know, he stayed on, he wanted to do uh, college really quickly, he did it in two years, uh, not four. He stayed an extra semester to learn a fifth language with John Witherspoon. Uh, and I think what he was trying to figure out in his own life was, should I become a minister or a lawyer? And he didn't choose either path. He was truly liberally educated, and that stuck with him the rest of his life. I mean, if you read the Constitutional Convention with students, you'll have to have an extensive array of footnotes, because they're presuming knowledge in a very liberal, humane way of a lot of history. And they're presuming that that would be perpetuated. That's, that's an inadequate answer to a huge question, but, but I hope that that helps a little bit.